Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. This is Perry Marshall. I am here with Rupert Sheldrake. And uh, Rupert, if you do not know who he is, has been a champion of not putting science on too high of a pedestal for a long time. He wrote a superb book a few years ago called The Science Delusion, which I was very enthusiastic about. And he has a new book called Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work, which is a book about things like fasting, praying, healing, thin spaces, animals. Uh, very interesting book. Um, that brings a much wider perspective than what is normally considered politically correct. And given the nature of Evolution 2.0, I thought it would be great to interview him for our podcast. So good afternoon or good evening in the U.K., I think it is, uh, and welcome. Good. Good to be with you, Perry. So, Mr. Sheldrake, what motivates you to do what you do, considering that what you do gets a fair of Amount of opposition. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, defying norms and making people upset isn't normally what most of us enjoy doing. But you know, you're this is very important to you. What? How did this come to be so important in your life? Well, I don't go out of my way to upset people. I mean, that's not my objective. My objective really comes from the fact that. As a biologist, I did my PhD at Cambridge. I studied philosophy of science at Harvard. Um, I was taught biology at Cambridge University. Um, and, you know, I was deeply immersed in, in the official world of biology. Um, I became more and more convinced that the mechanistic, materialistic model of life is just inadequate. And I looked for a broader picture, a more holistic view of life. Um, I came up with the idea of morphic resonance, the idea of a memory in nature, inheritance involving uh, habits that are inherited directly, not just through genes. And I came to this not through thinking about you know, metaphysics, but thinking about the development of plants. I was working on plant morphogenesis, the development of plant forms. And I just realized that genes alone can't explain this. There has to be a formative field, a morphogenetic field. Um, and these fields can't be inherited through genes. They have to be inherited in some other way. And that's how that led me to the idea of morphic resonance, which really leads to the idea that in a radically evolutionary universe, the laws of nature are more like habits than like a kind of cosmic Napoleonic code fixed at the moment of the Big Bang. Now, this got me into a lot of trouble with um, scientists who mostly believe that the laws of nature are all perfectly fixed. Funnily enough, many scientists are dogmatic, militant atheists, and yet they like the idea that the laws of nature just appeared out of nowhere at the Big Bang and have ruled the universe ever since. 
and it's a kind of really a very theological view, in fact. I agree. But uh, I think the evolutionary habits make more sense. I then realized there's a huge amount that science doesn't explain, including psychic phenomena like telepathy and indeed consciousness itself. And um, I was drawn to explore consciousness personally through, first, through psychedelics in the early 70s, and then through meditation and yoga, and then through um, following a, a progressively um, a greater interest in spiritual practices alongside my scientific research. Now, all of this brings me into, in, not exactly into conflict, I don't seek out conflict, but it means that militant atheists and committed materialists don't like what I'm doing because they see it as heresy. I do it because I think it needs doing, and someone has to do it, because I think we've got to break out of this imprisoning, dogmatic framework that science is trapped within. My book, The Science Delusion, is about that. The American title is actually a better reflection of what I'm trying to do. In America, it's called Science Step B. It's really about trying to liberate science from uh, the dogmatic framework of beliefs that it's got enmeshed in. Well, I, I completely agree with you um, that the current set of parameters that are enclosed around science are too confining and inadequate. I mean, I created a $5 million technology prize because I didn't see anybody who had a solution to the information problem in, in biology. And so uh, so I think what you're doing is, is very important. Could you give people just uh, – just a couple of examples of things that support morphic resonance. You, in one of your books, you talk about uh, dogs knowing that their owners are coming home, or maybe that would be a good, a good example, or maybe there's some other ones that. Um, oh well, the, the dogs, the, the dogs thing is more to do with telepathy, which is a slightly separate from my interest in morphic resonance. Okay. Morphic resonance is about influences through time. And it says that each species has a kind of collective memory. So, for example, um, the theory predicts that if rats at Harvard are trained to learn a new trick, rats in Edinburgh, Scotland, and rats in Melbourne, Australia, uh, should be able to learn the same trick quicker just because the rats in Harvard have learned it, without any normal known means of connection. Now, that's why it's controversial, because you know, it doesn't involve carrying the rats training them in a special way. They just let, pick it up. It's part of the collective memory of that kind of rat solving that particular problem. Now, it turns out there's actually a, a 20 or 30-year project on rat behavior at Harvard, Edinburgh, and Melbourne that showed exactly that effect. <laughs> um, an enormous increase in the rate of learning, more than tenfold increase in the speed of learning, um, which uh, transferred across from Boston, Massachusetts, to Scotland and Australia. Um, the hypothesis also predicts that if humans do something repeatedly, it should get easier. So in the 1980s, I predicted that IQ tests should be getting easier because so many millions of people have done them. Mm. I predicted average IQ scores would be going up, not because people are getting smarter, but because the tests are getting easier. And in fact, that's exactly what's turned out to be the case. It's called the Flynn effect. I mean, I didn't put the data together. A psychologist called James Flynn did that. 
more than 30% increase in average IQ over the last 70 years or so. And um, it's not really explicable in normal terms. Um, okay, lots of people have tried to explain it, but uh, it, it is an actual prediction. Uh, it's something I actually predicted before the data were found uh, uh, of Morphic resonance. So there are lots and lots of other examples. I discussed them in my main theoretical book on this, which is called The Presence of the Past. And I think that this view of a kind of memory in nature just makes so many more things understandable. Um, so many things that are mysteries within existing science or unsolved problems um, look uh, much more soluble. It, and I think it could uh, trigger a massive paradigm shift. Well, I think it inevitably would produce a massive paradigm shift. It's just a matter of, well, probably getting, coming up with some kind of framework for why this happens. I mean, um, I mean, I don't, I'm not a super expert in this field, but from what I understand, there aren't any real strong theories on the table as to why psychic phenomena exist. I, I know I've experienced them. Um, you know, at some point, you trust your own experience more than you trust other people's theories. That, at least that's how I operate. Yeah, well, you know, I think that the, um, what we need to do in science First of all, find out whether the phenomenon happens and then try to explain it. Yeah. You know, what a lot of people, the view they take of psychic phenomena or morphic resonance phenomena is saying, we can't explain this, therefore it doesn't exist. Yeah. Now, that's not the way science actually works. I mean, <laughs> Sir Isaac Newton didn't really explain gravity. He had an equation that described gravity, you know, the inverse square law, the law of gravitation. Uh, but Newton himself, confessed he had no explanation for why matter on Earth should attract matter throughout the entire universe at a distance. And it wasn't really until Einstein's theory of gravitational field came up in the 1920s that there was an explanation more than 250 years later. Um, and Michael Faraday, who discovered electric and ma magnetic fields, uh, couldn't explain them. Um, Maxwell came along 20 years later and provided Maxwell's equations that explained them in terms of the so-called ether, the luminiferous ether. And then in 1905, Einstein showed the ether didn't exist and that the electric and magnetic fields must work according to their, their own properties. The fields are just fields. They're not made of anything. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of morphic resonance or telepathy, um, I think the key thing is to recognize phenomena exist. And then there could be a series of theories, rival theories, um, a succession of theories to explain them. But science doesn't depend historically on having the explanation first and then recognizing phenomenon. We don't have an explanation for consciousness, after all. It's called the hard problem in philosophy of mind because there's no known materialistic explanation for it. Um, it's just supposed to be a byproduct of mental or brain activity. But nobody, well, some people actually do deny consciousness exists because we can't explain it. But they're fighting a losing battle, really, because we all know it exists because we're all conscious. We think that's all we have to be conscious. And yet, we don't have a mathematical equation for consciousness um, or any uh, explanation, really. When you were in biology, and you began to develop your 
morphic field theory. What was the specific thing that did not add up that caused you to abandon the existing model? Well, the development of time. That's what I was working on at Cambridge. And I was at the forefront of molecular explanations. I was was brought up as a mechanistic, materialistic biologist. I was an atheist and materialist. I I fitted the entire profile that you're meant to fit as a modern biological researcher. And I actually figured out how the main plant hormone, which is called auxin, is made and done, and also how it's transported. And together with a colleague, Philip Ruby in Cambridge, I worked out the means by which auxin transport works and the whole polarity of plants depends on them. This is now kind of textbook stuff in, in plant science. But having worked out how the main hormone that affects form and growth in plants is made and how it's moved around, I realized this didn't really explain form because the same hormone is present in all plants, all largish plants, um, palm trees, bamboos, sunflower, polypops. They've all got the same hormone. They've all got roughly the same transport system. And within a given plant, say a rose plant, the same hormone and the same transport system is present in the leaves, the petals, the stem, the roots. And yet they all have different shapes. So you can't really explain all these different shapes, the forms of leaves, petals, and so on, uh, in terms of this or any other chemical. Something else is needed. And within biology, there was already... Uh, the idea of morphogenetic fields, form-shaping fields, an idea first occurred in the 1920s and fairly mainstream within biology, even today. Uh, the thing is that nobody knows what these fields are. They're like invisible shaping fields or blueprints or forms. It's like a magnetic field. is within a magnet and all around the magnet. You can see it shaped through lines of force in other filings. But even if there's no iron filings around the magnet, the field is there. The Earth's magnetic field is around you and me and everybody else who's listening to us. Um, and it's invisible, but if you get out a compass, you can detect the field. Uh, but it's an invisible structure. And the idea was that within plants, uh, the leaves of uh, each species, there had to be a leaf field and petal field and root field that would shape these structures as like an invisible mold. And that idea is, um, you know, very important in developmental biology. But most scientists think that either you can explain these fields by coming up with some kind of mathematical equation for them. Um, in my view, that doesn't explain them, it just models them. Or um, they say, well, We'll figure it out. We don't know what they are, but we'll figure it out in 50 years or 100 years' time in terms of the main fields and forces of physics and chemistry. Well, I think it's a new kind of field with new kinds of properties and based on morphic resonance, kind of inherent memory. So that's my hypothesis. And the alternative is to say we don't know, but we'll figure it out in conventional terms at some indefinite point in the future. So the alternative isn't really an explanation. It's a promise of an explanation that doesn't yet exist. Mm. And um, I don't think we need to wait 100 years until that fails. I think it's bound to fail. Um, I'm suggesting that we get on with testing alternatives now, devoting perhaps 0.01% of the time to the activity 
looking at alternative theories, rather than having 100% or 100.000% devoted only to conventional mechanistic theories, with all else being forbidden, until this breaks down in, in several generations of time. But I'm in favor of open science, a non-totalitarian and pluralistic approach, to look at problems we don't know the answers to, like the development of form and the nature of consciousness. So, I'm a little bit familiar with the theories of biological form, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but so an insect has the, the shape of an insect with six legs and, and a head, thorax, and ad, abdomen, or when an animal has, you know, two arms and two legs, or a plant has a certain shape, that shape, so far as we know, is not encoded in the genes no. specifically, correct? No, the genes code for the sequence of amino acids and proteins. That's what we know they do, and that's what they do do. And some are involved in the control of other genes activity. And, and so tell me if, if I'm right about this. Um, my understanding is that when a baby in a mother's womb is growing an arm, there is a field that the cells, uh, conf the, the cells conform to the shape of the field as it grows, and then cells fill in the space until there's a certain amount of pressure on each cell, which says, okay, there's enough cells here, you can stop growing. Is that about right? Well, yes. I, I mean, the field that the cells are responding to is exactly what I'm talking about, the more yes. field. And the cells, once they've filled the field up, yes, they stop growing. If you cut part of an organ off, then they, it regenerates because the field fills up the missing spaces, as it were. Mm. You know, that's what happens if you cut off part of your liver, it regrows. In the skin, the skin regrows. And we have limited regenerative capacities compared with flatworms or plants. But in the case of plants, you can take a small cutting from the willow tree, just a you know, half an inch of the stem, will grow a whole new tree. Mm. So these, as flatworm, you can cut in small pieces. Each piece will grow a new worm. And the reason that the field is such a good model for this is that fields are inherently holistic. If you take a magnet and you cut it in half, um, you don't get one half that's a north pole and the other half that's the south pole. You get two small but complete magnets, each with a north and south pole. Mm. Likewise, if you cut a fat worm in half, you don't get one half that's a head half and the other half a tail half. You get a head half that grows a tail and a tail half that grows a head. So we regenerate the complete form, uh, which suggests that we, even if you cut it in half, they each have a complete field which enables them to regrow and regenerate. And maybe I wasn't entirely clear that these are not normal electrical or magnetic fields. This is a field of whose nature has never really been quantified. That's right. I mean, there's several models for morphogenetic fields. The conventional models say that they're um, based on chemical gradients, diffusion and transport of chemical morphogenic chemicals that shape morphology. That's exactly what I did my PhD in Cambridge on. I, you know, I just want leaders in this whole field. Um, and I, I think they play a part. That's something I've been published lots of papers in major journals, including on this. Um, so 
I think they play the chemicals play a part. It's by no means enough to explain the shape of a leg or an arm or a leaf. Mm. Um, and electrical fields play a part as well. And there's now evidence that morphogenetic fields do have an electrical component. But that doesn't mean it's nothing but electricity or nothing but chemicals. Those are part of what's going on, but the actual shape, form, you know, the same electricity exists in all organisms. Um, and why the electric field should take up a particular form, you see, it begs the question, if you say, well, it takes up a leaf shape and a leaf, it takes up a leg shape and a leg, then why does the electric field have a leaf shape and a leaf and a leg shape and a leg? Something else must be shaping it. And that is what the morphogenetic field is supposed to do. So your theory is that these same fields are also storing memory of events or shapes or responses to events uh, that are shared by living things. So you, your explanation of of rats learning faster and faster, apparently because rats somewhere else in the world learned the same thing, that that information is being transferred in a morphogenetic field. Is that right? Yes, by morphic resonance. Morphic resonance is the process of transfer based on similarity of form, pattern, and vibration. If it's similar to something that's happened before, there'll be a resonance from the past that will shape what's happening now. So, for example, the baby giraffe embryo developing in the womb of the mother giraffe, because it's already got giraffe proteins, giraffe cells, they tune into the, the thousands, millions of previous developing giraffes and um, have a kind of memory of their form, which will shape it as it grows. It will grow into a giraffe form, and when it's born, it will start, it, it's the activity of the nervous system will resonate with previous giraffes and pick up giraffe instincts. So these will be inherited by morphic resonance. They're not in the genes, because the genes only take the proteins, they don't take the instincts or shape. Um, so um, that's basically what I'm saying. So how do you see the use of this knowledge, like even starting right now, like are there ways of harnessing this that can be employed even though we don't really know why it works? Well, yes. I mean, it, I mean, it should be possible to harness it in education if you design educational systems to maximize morphic resonance, people will learn quicker. Um, that means, and I think in fact this is what happens when people are learning practical skills like dancing or riding a bicycle or driving a car. You learn by a kind of resonance with the person who's teaching you. You mm -hmm. don't learn by reading about it in a book. And if you're learning a language, the best way to learn it is to come into a kind of resonance with people speak, being around people speaking and hearing it all the time. The worst way to learn it is the way that people taught languages in English schools um, with a textbook full of lists of irregular verbs and that kind of thing, which is not the way that native speakers ever learn the language. Um, <laughs> and I think it's one reason why English people are so notoriously bad at learning languages. Um, it's taught in a way that minimizes the effect of morphic resonance. Babies learn language naturally in a way that maximizes it by kind of resonating with people speaking around them. And that's why.
can't be explained just in terms of stimulus response psychology. Mm. It's something that babies pick up. And the Chinese baby adopted by an American, a white American family, um, would pick up English. Um, it's not in the genes. It's not that they're genetically programmed to speak Chinese. They just use it um, and vice versa. And white American baby in a Chinese family would learn. Um, and it's a kind of resonant process, and that's why language learning can happen far quicker than conventional psychology can explain, which is why Noam Chomsky thought that it was somehow innate or inherited. And I think it is inherited, but inherited through morphic resonance, not through genes. Hmm. You know, I've been thinking, probably a week ago, I was thinking about the whole question of consciousness and how impenetrable it seems to be and all I've been able to think of as well you got to pull on the string that at least you know you can pull on and the one I'm aware of is psychic phenomenon there's lots and lots of research that has shown that it happens it's not really politically correct to talk about it because nobody understands why it works but you know you have to at least deal with what you do know, right? And so it sounds like what you're saying is um, you have a model and it explains a certain amount of things reasonably well. So let's run with that model until we either improve on it or find a better one. But we can't just pretend that this stuff doesn't happen. That's why I spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time investigating psychic phenomena like dogs that know when their owners are coming home, which I've shown is a kind of telepathy. It's not just routine, it's not just hearing familiar sounds, it's not just people at home giving clues to the dog. It's more than that. The dog picks up the person's intention from a distance. We have lots of filmed experiments that show this. Yeah. Website, and there's a video showing one of them on the website of great.org. And um, the commonest human kind is telephone telepathy, thinking of someone who then calls. And it's funny, I was just thinking about you. About 80% of people have that experience. And again, I've shown it's not just coincidence. In tests where we have four potential callers chosen by the subject who knows the people they know well. We pick one of the four callers at random, ask them to call the subject. They have to guess before they pick up the phone or look at the caller ID who's calling. They're being filmed. Um, you know, they might say, hi, John, and as when they pick it up, they guess before and say, I think it's John. So if John's one of the four callers, they've got a 25% chance of being right by just guessing. Um, in these experiments, the hit rate is almost twice the chance level. It's 45%. Um, way above the 25% chance level. With hundreds of trials, this is massively significant statistically. Um, so, again, I've got a film showing one of these experiments on my website, um, on great.org, uh, and also lots of peer-reviewed papers on these subjects. And I think there's no doubt these things actually happen. I think they happen because Members of social groups are linked together through what I call social fields, which are a kind of morphic field, a kind of resonance between them. And um, that it's left to occur, generally speaking, only between people and animals that have emotional connections, part of the same group, not with strangers. 
I think there is actually a, a theory that can help explain this. Um, and I think the phenomenon is fear. And the response of conventional um, dogmatic skeptic is to say, we can't explain it, therefore it doesn't exist. That's because they believe the mind is nothing but the activity of the brain. These things ought not to happen. But actually they do happen, and the brain, brain is more, the mind is more extensive than the brain. And uh, I think links together uh, people who are emotionally bonded, and also links together people and animals. And, dogs. and that's the theme of my book, Dogs That Know When They're Only Coming Home. Well, this has been great. I know we're up against our time limit. Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming on. So there is your book, Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work. There are the books, The Presence of the Past, and then Dogs Who Know Their Owners. Dogs are, That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home, and The Science Delusion in America Called Science Step Free. That's the most, if people want to read just one of my books, um, I would suggest Science Step Free because it's one that brings together um, you know, a, 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 an analysis of, the, of all the areas where the sciences are stuck and ways in which they could move forward. And it summarizes my ideas on market resonance, telepathy, and other conventions in controversial countries. Well, I really appreciate your books, and I appreciate your willingness to defy the norm, and uh, thank you for your time today. It was a real pleasure to talk with you. Very nice to talk to you, Terry. You could have gone on a lot longer, but I suppose now we covered a lot of ground anyway. So, yes. yes, sir. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com.